Welcome back to Not A Dollar More. My name is Shane Rogers. This is Australia's first podcast series dedicated to helping people who are wanting to stop or control their gambling, or for people who just want to know more about the potential harmful effects of gambling. I've experienced a gambling addiction myself, so I know all about it. In our last episode of Getting Help, I spoke to people about the benefits of professional help. In this episode, we'll be continuing to look at how people manage to stop or reduce their gambling. We will be speaking to Dr. Sophie Faciliatis, who did research on informal pathways to recovery. We'll also speak to Dan about a program called Peer Connection, and also Adrian to talk about self-exclusion. But first up, we'll speak to Kate, who has an unbelievable story of how she got hooked on the pokies. She'll also share her experience of recovery. Welcome, Kate. Thanks, Shane. It's great to be here. Never thought I'd ever be in this place where I'd be sharing my story the fact that I can talk about it is an amazing thing because way back in um, 2001, I didn't know what was happening to me. I was a professional social planner with a newly minted master's degree, starting out a new career in local government. And uh, I went to the uh, city of Burundara and my first task in my role there was to do a socioeconomic impact assessment on the introduction of five new pokey machines at the Riversdale Hotel. Never gambled in my life before on the pokies had taken an occasional lottery ticket and never even gambled on the horses. So um, I was exposed to pokey machines through my work at the time. Now, unbeknownst to me at that time, I was also taking a drug called a dopamine agonist for a neurological condition that I have. Medicine didn't know and I didn't know that that particular drug actually causes compulsive behaviours. We know now that pokey machines actually affect the dopamine pathways of the brain. And I was taking dopamine for my neurological condition, which was quite disabling. So my brain was kind of alive with dopamine, not processing it normally anyway. When I did the theoretical work for the socioeconomic study, I decided to go down to the Riversdale and have a look at the venue. There was nobody there and there were machines lining the walls and I thought, it's dead. What on earth do people see in these things? And I sort of shrugged my shoulders and went away. But a few days later, I was shopping in Swan Street, Richmond, and I looked across the road and saw the big pokey sign at the Vaucluse Hotel. And uh, I thought, hmm, I'll go over and have a look. It might be a bit different on a Friday night. So um, I did go over and have a look, and uh, the place was full of people. It was alive. You know, the music for the pokey machines, people talking, all sorts of things happening, and I can see that... People were happy, and I thought, this is a bit different. I had a go in one of the machines. I didn't know how they worked, but I had a go, and I lost $175. I remember that. Wow. So I I went. I was a bit flattened by that, and I I left the venue and went home and came back next day. I lived not far from Swan Street to do some more shopping, and I thought, hmm, I'll go over and have another look. There might not be so many people there. So I went over and I had another look and there weren't so many people there and it was very inviting. So I sat down and stayed for a couple of hours. I was mesmerised almost from the very beginning. Hypnotised, people say. Looking back, I can see that's what happened to me. So I started going back more and more often. And before long, I was spending most of my salary on them. Within a few weeks, a few months, a few weeks, I can't remember, but it didn't take me long to become totally taken over by the, um, the magic of the machines. That's unbelievable. When did you find out that the medication could be having an effect on this? I didn't find that out until I 
six years later, <laughs> when I had reached a point where I, I knew I had to stop. So I, I knew my life was in a really bad place. I'd lost hundreds of thousands of dollars and all my superannuation from the previous job shares. I'd taken out another mortgage on my flat. Um, I had no savings. I had lost a job and I was trying to start anew. So I was in a bad place and I discovered a Mayo Clinic study which identified that medication with gambling. And the pharmaceutical industry had known about that the drug caused compulsive behaviours but had not informed the medical profession and they dismissed the risk as too small to be of concern. Wow, you would have been blown away. I was shocked. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked. As well as being deeply shocked, I was immensely relieved. And you have these two conflicting feelings of shock, anger, dismay and relief that it wasn't my fault. And I think that uh, while it was a dopamine agonist medication that I took, which made me particularly vulnerable, for other people it might be something different. You know, people go into a pokey venue, playing pokey socially perhaps as part of a group, and they might go back once a month or once a fortnight or something and just play a few games. But something happens in their lives which makes them vulnerable and they begin to use pokies as a way of escape, some way of getting away from what else is happening in their lives, which could be marriage problems, it could be the death of a child, you know, work problems, unemployment, any kind of crisis. It's fairly common that those sorts of situations can precipitate people into compulsive gambling. The episode is about getting help. You finally did get help. I went to a psychiatrist in the first year of my gambling and he didn't know very much. He just treated me for addiction, really, and I didn't see myself as an addict. Yeah, right. <laughs> I knew something had happened to me and I didn't understand, but I didn't want to be written off in the way he seemed to be writing me off. So I left. I didn't go back to him. Yep. Then I went to see a couple of years later when things were really getting worse, a psychologist. And she was lovely and she really did help me, but I still wasn't at the point of accepting what had happened. I knew I was being driven from something within, but I didn't understand it and I couldn't stop. I was still taking the medication at the time and I can see now what was happening. So I, that wasn't successful either. I sought spiritual help on two occasions because I thought, you know, I'm a, just a rotten person and um, that didn't help either. So that's the hard part for people, isn't it, when they go and seek help and perhaps it doesn't work. You know, you feel a little bit lost and you feel a little bit like this addiction could be with you for the rest of your life. What other things did you try? Now, I didn't have faith that other people could help me. So my first years of recovery were kind of gritted teeth recovery. I knew that it was really important for people to have a meaningful role in life. And I had been successful in getting another job. So I had a job in the area in which I was qualified and had lots of potential and I loved it. And it enabled me to develop another sense of meaning in life and it connected me with others. So that's what kept me going for the next five or six years. It was very hard at times. I did have a lapse. A couple of years after, I stopped, and that was because of tremendous pressure at work. That really frightened me, and it gave me a sense of the power of the compulsion, that I could fall back so quickly into those old patterns. And then I just managed to stop. I developed new friendships I developed new interests. I went around to the Richmond Library and wandered around. I had no money. 
or anything at that stage. It was a book that had fallen out of the shelves on the ground and I picked it up and um, it was a book on the history of tarot cards. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was fascinated. It kind of captured my imagination. So apart from work and apart from all the the sort of steadfast things I was doing, I found something that captured my imagination. Mm. Just to go back a little bit for when you did stop and you were having your relapses, were there any other things that sort of kept you on track? Professionally, I worked with people with disabilities in a peer support framework, and it reminded me of the power of peer support and the power of story and the power of shared experience. Not only the healing power of that, but the remarkable things that can happen when people work together for a common purpose. And I think it was working with that group of people that reminded me of my past experience in peer support in the alcohol and drug field and the mental health field. I had been to Gamblers Anonymous a couple of times during my gambling. I strongly believe in the power of 12-step programs. I just wasn't ready for it at that time. I know now since, and I've met many people who've recovered through GA, that it does work. And it works through the power of shared hope and experience. People tell their stories of gambling in a really relaxed and um, comfortable way, in a safe space. And that's really what you need to do to begin to recover. You need to be able to tell someone else what happened. And in places like GA, you have an opportunity to do that. A lot of people have a problem with GA because of misconceptions about it. You don't have to believe in God. All you have to believe in is the power of the group. And I know people who have been recovered for years who still attend GA because they love the whole idea of being with others. They have friends there. It's a little community. And it just reinforces their own recovery and it enables them to reach out to others. So it does work for many. Some people are put off by the thought of abstinence too. And I didn't like that idea myself well into my recovery and I knew that theoretically GA worked. But... I understand it now. It's about being content with what one has. As gamblers, we... Want more. Want more. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, And we think we can have it all for nothing (laughs) or not (laughs) nothing. But, you know, to, to actually take a break from that false hope and to look at who you are at this very present moment and what you have and what your relationships are and what you want to do isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I know um, even through my story and my recovery, I stopped buying raffle tickets because there was still an element of rush from paying $2 for a ticket and winning a prize or winning money and things like mm-hmm. that. So it really goes back down to like even raffle tickets yeah. as uh, getting that rush. And... and I think some of us, we just need a little of that and we're away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't take much to um, go into it, you know, full fling again and you're lost. Picking up on the benefits of peer support, which I get very excited about, can be a great way for meeting people going through similar problems with addiction. And a lot of people feel the shame and the stigma with sharing their story. Did you? Oh, look, I didn't realise how deeply it permeated my whole sense of self. I was uh, in my early 50s when I started gambling. I was a professional woman had a successful career behind me. I had high-level tertiary education. I had a good life. I had everything that one could want, and yet suddenly something had happened to turn me into a compulsive gambler. I felt such a deep sense of shame and guilt and fear 
I didn't even know what was happening. I knew what I felt, but I had no insight into it. And it's the worst kind of feeling. It really stops you being a human being. You can't reach out to people in everyday life in the same way. I had this terribly dark secret that I was going to work doing professional things and yet in the night time I was going to a pokey venue, sometimes staying there until 2 or 3 in the morning. You know, I never spent any time in hotels in my whole life and here I am at this stage of life doing that. It was appallingly um, difficult to talk about. My relationship was going wrong and I couldn't talk about that with my partner. I cut myself off from my family through shame. I didn't go out anymore. I was afraid to leave the house. When I left, I knew I would gamble. I suddenly became somebody that I didn't know. I didn't know anyone else with the same issues. Even in recovery, I found it really hard to talk about what had happened. And I think the best times in my life, in my recovery, have been when I've been with other gamblers. And that's one of the fantastic things about peer programs is that you hear other stories and you think, hey, I did that. Yeah, that's right. The identification. uh, And you laugh about it. And that's one of the most healing things is the capacity to laugh about it. And you know you can do that with people who've been through the same experience. You know, I fell out of a gambling venue and broke my glasses and scratched my face. I picked myself up, dusted myself off, went to the optometrist around the corner, got the glasses bent out and went back to the venue. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's wow. the sheer madness of the, um, of the addiction. Now, I could, wouldn't tell that story to anyone but another gambler. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did worse things than that. Just to be able to get it out, to see the smiles and the unquestioning and feel the unquestioning acceptance is very healing. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about peer support is that it takes away the shame. Yeah. I think a lot of gamblers would have a, a glasses out of the pub story <laughs> of some sort. So thanks for sharing that with us. So based on um, your life gambling, recovered, if if someone's listening today that's just left a venue, lost a lot of money, uh, addicted to the pokies, what would be your bit of advice for them? Reach out. Talk about what's happening. Go and talk to someone. Find someone to talk to. We're lucky now in Victoria there are many places to go and many people to talk to. There are places like GA. There are other peer groups like the Peer Connection One you can get involved in. Gambus Help Services, and the counselling and services now are much better than they ever were, and they run peer programs in those services too. Uh, you might feel just walking out of the venue and you walked in with 800 bucks and you're walking out with nothing yet again, and you might not feel like even thinking that recovery is possible, but anything would be better than the dark space you're in right now. There is hope. Yeah. You know, there is hope. You've just got to take the first step. And even if you take the first step and fall over, and most of us do that, that relapse or lapse is more common than than recovery from the first time you reach out for help. It's a very powerful and hidden and um, cunning addiction. Also, I think that gambling changes the brain, particularly pokey machine gambling, in ways that other addictions don't. And it's really hard to understand because you're not taking a drink, you're not injecting a drug, you're not swallowing a pill. You're actually just interacting with a machine or you're buying a ticket and watching a horse race on TV. The impact on your brain is hidden. And most people don't understand that. We do because we've experienced it, professionals do, but most people, the common, ordinary people who 
get caught up in these things have no idea what it's actually doing. Mm. Kate, thanks so very much for coming in today. You've done some amazing things in your life and um, I hope they continue. Thank you, Shane. You're listening to Not A Dollar More, and in this episode, we're talking about different ways to get help. Coming up next, we have Dr. Sophie Vasiliadis, a social researcher from Deakin University, who's researched informal pathways to recovery. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, Shane. You've done some research into the types of things people do to help themselves when they realize they have a problem with gambling. What do you refer to as informal pathways of recovery? Informal pathways are those sorts of ways that a person can try to recover from a gambling problem by not actually seeking professional support. So it might be self-help kind of strategies and the support of family and friends and any other resources that they've got available to them to help them recover from gambling problems. Do you know how many people seek professional help for their gambling compared to people who don't? Yeah, we know that quite a lot of people um, will try to recover informally rather than seek professional help. So only something like 10% of problem gamblers choose to seek professional support, so either through a psychologist or the gambler's help services that are across Victoria. And something like 30 to 40% of problem gamblers will try to recover informally. The rest are not trying to recover in any way. So the vast majority are actually trying to recover informally rather than seek professional help. So it's really important that we really understand that process. So why do more people want to recover informally? There are quite a few different sorts of things that can make people attempt to recover informally. There's things like, you know, the stigma associated with problem gambling generally, with seeking professional help. And people like to also feel that they have their own personal resources that they can draw on. It's a sense of confidence and self-worth and asserting control Control, over their lives where in a situation where for a long time they haven't really had much control over their lives. So it's actually a very empowering experience for some people to attempt to recover informally rather than seek out a professional. So what were the most common strategies People use a whole range of strategies, really. The avoidance strategies probably are the most common. So people do try to avoid going to the venues and they'll try to make alternative arrangements with friends, you know, as you were saying. So I remember there was one guy I was talking to. He was saying that he works in the city and he used to just go straight from work to the casino and spend the evening there. He actually would go home a different way, a longer way Mm. through the city so that he couldn't see the casino. And he always made sure that throughout the day at least he's made an arrangement with a friend so that somebody is absolutely waiting for him within a short period of time, you know, within half an hour or an hour after finishing work. So he can't see the casino and he's going to something, you know, that's really positive and someone's waiting for him. So he's accountable to somebody as well. That's actually a really important part of it is the accountability. The notion of self-help I think is potentially a bit dangerous because you I don't think it is about helping yourself only. It's You really need to rely on a whole lot of other people around you, whether that's a professional or it's your family, your friends. It's probably all of those sorts of people. There's going to be a number of people that you're going to need to have there with you each day to support you go through all the ups and downs of recovery. And do people's strategies change over time? 
Yes, they did a little bit, I think, and it kind of depends on where you're coming from, I suppose. For some people, those sorts of avoidance strategies that we just talked about, they tend to be really key in the early days of avoiding strategies. After that, it then is a more about, as I was saying, sort of bringing meaning and purpose into your life and exchanging the gambling practices and anything that sits around gambling to a different sort of activity that is more meaningful. So it might be about establishing a stronger relationship with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and saying, okay, I am going to actually be committed to somebody. Because for some people, the gambling is actually their commitment. You know, I, I had this amazing quote from somebody who said, gambling was the love of my life. Yeah, right. You know, so there was really no room for anybody else, for a person in their life as long as they had gambling. And so a part of the recovery is making that decision that, okay, I'm not going to make gambling the central part of my life. I'm actually going to bring in other people. I'm going to make people, my friends, my family, my partner, the most important thing. And some people also turn to some spirituality. So it's, yeah, very much about bringing in positives and a longer-term focus. Are there any other practical strategies? A few things that people will do when they were experiencing a significant urge to gamble. In that moment of trying to stop an urge, they would call gamblers' help services particularly, sometimes Lifeline. So they would basically use a distraction method. So it's something to just distract them, keep them occupied until the urge subsides. As people were sort of more in the maintenance phase of their recovery, so it's sort of you know a number of months down the track or even a year or something down the track and they maybe have a reasonable amount of control but still feel some of these sorts of urges. Even just going for a walk for some people was actually really, really effective. So just that getting out, getting away and you know doing something else, distraction in, with a physical sort of activity or a social activity or talking to other people. They can be really, really effective. It sounds incredibly simple, but that can be really effective to just get you through and you know refocused onto something else. When are these informal recovery methods most effective for people? Uh, well, the reality is that people really do need the support of others around them as well. A person is able to recover effectively when they've got adequate support from family and friends, even employers. There were a number of instances where people received support from their employers ensuring that they they didn't just get paid but the employer would you know pay their bills instead of just um, get, dropping it into their account and um, just monitored them because people would leave during work hours and at lunchtime go and gamble and that sort of thing. So they got that kind of support from others. And um, people who were able to see a positive future for themselves, so to look beyond today or tomorrow, Particularly for younger people, it was about wanting to achieve those milestones in life, the pro-social sort of things of, you know, getting a girlfriend or a boyfriend and settling down, getting, you know, more stable accommodation, um, finishing off their studies, establishing a career. For older people, it was more about reconnecting with their family, you know, focusing on their children or grandchildren. I know um, for me when I was gambling and a lot of my friends were out buying houses with their girlfriends or their wives and Mm. it was really deflating, you know, you're happy for them but at the same time you're thinking, gee, you know, that's where I want to be and you just feel like when you're gambling you're so far away from that 
and that, that's really hard. Um, but just going back to family and friends, what type of role can the family and friends play in helping someone? Well, they can have an incredibly important role, particularly family more so, but certainly friends as well. This was one of the interesting things that I found as well in the study was that there were sort of two pathways. One was that there were people who were able to self-manage their recovery process. So they kind of directed how it all went. And the role of family and friends there was they were able to sort of sit back a little bit and just be ready to support that person however they felt they needed to be supported rather than taking control. There was the other pathway where there were other people who just weren't really the sort to be self-managing their recovery. They needed somebody else to manage it on their behalf until later on down the track, usually they then overtook that role and started to self-manage. There was an, uh, an older lady whose daughter, you know, adult daughter, had um, taken control of her finances, so she made sure that all the bills were paid, her mother's rent was paid, and then her sister-in-law would drive her to the supermarket and back again because next to the supermarket was a pokies venue as they so often are, and, um, you know, they all realised that it was just going to be too much of a trigger for her. Yeah, I know what um, helped me was when I told my girlfriend um, at the time she had no idea that I was gambling, Mm. and I said, you know, I really want to stop and this is it, Um, and I pretty much handed over sort of my cards and all my finances, so she took care of all that, and that actually helped rebuild the trust with her. Yes. So it kind of works two ways, really. Um, You're helping yourself, but, you know, you're helping your relationship as well. I'm glad you pointed that out. That was really, really important that it not only gave them themselves the confidence to, you know, by recovering informally, but it also meant that they connected again with all of those people in their lives who they'd probably had a diminished, at least, relationship with, in some cases, you know, very severely affected kind of relationship but by attempting these sorts of informal recovery strategies they connected again with partners parents other family members and friends for people that want to make changes to their gambling um, what could they take or learn from your research one of the first things that I would say is really that you need to tell someone that you have a gambling problem you need to Um, Not only come to terms with it yourself, that's I suppose the first step of recognising in yourself that you have a gambling problem, but you need to have somebody who you can trust and who you respect and be open with that person. And if they confront you or you feel that you're ready to be able to tell them either way, that you do actually speak up and say, yes, I have a problem and I need help. I'd just like to also say that if you're a family member or a friend who'd like to talk to somebody about their gambling problem, it can actually be really helpful to say that not only to tell them that they have a problem, but to also say, and I'm here to help. And that extra element can be really powerful. It's particularly important if you feel that that person might be somebody who is going to struggle to self-manage their gambling recovery. And you think that they probably will need somebody to be really supportive on a day-to-day basis. Thanks for taking the time out today, Sophie. We will have a link to your research on our website. Thanks so much for having me. And I'd just like to acknowledge that the project was also co-funded by the Australian Institute of Family Studies. Great. Thanks very much. This is Not A Dollar More. 
Next up, we'll be talking to Dan, who volunteers with the Peer Connection Program. We spoke to Dan in episode one, and he's back to tell us how this program works. Thanks for coming back, Dan. No problem, Shane. Thanks for having me back. The Peer Connection Program is a program where people have lived experience and are able to talk through their recoveries, if you like, with uh, people who have a gambling problem. We have all a wide range of volunteers who have had different journeys and different recoveries. And the way it works is usually through a counsellor, we get a recommendation or a referral to the program. Our supervisor then tries to match that person with the best volunteer. So in my case, it's I had a, a sports betting gambling problem. I mean, quite often I speak to young men, and it doesn't necessarily lock into that, but quite often some of my calls are issues with sports gambling and betting. Through that, they can decide how often the calls are for, whether it's weekly, fortnightly. Some of the calls like I have will space out to monthly and eventually bi-monthly, and then you know, we'll call back in and graduate them out once they've got their gambling under control. You use that service, that, is that right? Yes, I did, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was a recommendation through a gambler's help counsellor that referred me to the program. And I spoke to someone very similar, uh, family, uh, lifestyle, if you like, to mine, and it was invaluable. I, every Tuesday night it was a call at first, which gradually went out to fortnightly. Uh, but, yeah, the calls I really look forward to, and I think it was just the fact that you were speaking to someone who had a gambling problem or had had a gambling problem. For me, it was all about that lived experience. I wanted to hear people who had the lived experience, who had uh, gotten through a massive issue and got to the other side and their family was great and everything was wonderful. So now you're a volunteer at the Peer Connection Program. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, I probably got to a point in my recovery where I was looking for something else, like what else could I do? I know I mentioned before about helping others and, and that was really important to me. And I sort of wasn't sure that um, my story would would help people. Like I was really nervous about what could I possibly give back because I'd only spoken to one volunteer and he'd given me so much and I'm thinking well, probably that doubt and that telling your story is going to help. But went through a, a training. You have to go through a pretty extensive training program, working through with other volunteers, listening to their calls and how they speak to uh, their clients, and just went through that whole process. And so sometimes they're just telling you about their day to day stuff and going through their program, or what what they've done, what they haven't done well, and it's great. Like it's now I've been doing it for three and a half years, and yeah, I'll get I'll get a lot out of it. It's really it's a good program and. Especially for remote people, like in Country Vic and obviously around Australia, they can't get to where they need to do. So to have that phone call every week or fortnight, that's a big part of their recovery. Oh, that's fantastic, Dan. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Our last interview is with Adrian from the Australian Hotels Association of Victoria to talk about the self-exclusion program. Thanks for joining us today, mate. Can you tell us how it works? Yeah, the self-exclusion program is designed for people who have identified that they're having a hassle with the pokey machines in Victoria. Basically, people can ban themselves and they can ban themselves from a number of pokey venues and for a period of time that they choose. And it's completely voluntary and on behalf of the person that wants to put this in place. So can you take us through the general process for somebody that's experiencing harm from the pokies? Mm -hmm. What do they do? So basically the best thing that people can do is to give us a call 
And then what we will do is arrange an appointment with them. And we can meet them in the city at our office or we have a range of different places that we can meet people in the outer suburbs and also around Victoria in some of the rural and regional centres as well. Okay, good. So how long can you ban yourself from the pokies for? So the minimum time is for six months and the maximum time is two years. But a lot of people choose to renew to sign up again So people might start off with either six months, one year or two years. And once they can actually see that it's helping them, then a lot of people will sign up again because they like not having those hassles come back. So how many venues can you self-exclude from? We don't have a set number of venues. What we actually try to do is base it on where people are currently going to the pokies or where they have been going and where they might reasonably be expected to go. So what we do is we look at where people maybe are living, the area that they live in, or they work, or they visit regularly, and then what we can do is we can build a list of those venues in those areas so that then they don't get tempted themselves to go to those areas. Mm -hmm. We actually have a process where people can then call us once it's up and running to actually add in additional venues so that if they do start going to somewhere else, we can then include those venues as well. Okay. So what information is the venue given once somebody self-excludes from it? So that's a really important question because people do ask us, like, you know, what happens with my information and everything? And one really important thing that I wanted to communicate is sometimes people get concerned, like, will this affect their credit ratings? Will the police know? Will the government know? So we actually don't report any personal information to the government about the self-exclusion program. The venue, though, what we need to provide them with is a photograph. So we actually take a photo when we meet with the person if they want to go ahead with the program after we explain it. So what we give the venue is the photograph, their name of the person, the address and the date of birth. The reason we give them some basic identifying information is because sometimes people get approached by the staff and the staff will ask, excuse me, is your name John, for example? And then John may turn around and say, no, 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 my name is Mark. Because sometimes people are feeling embarrassed and they want the person to just like not ask them. The other reason is sometimes the gambling part of the brain is like playing a trick on the person and they're like, if I give them a different name, maybe they'll leave me alone so I can keep playing for longer. So the next step the staff are going to take is to ask this person, can I please see some ID? And when they see the ID, they'll see that the person's name is John. They'll see that the date of birth, the address matches with what they've been provided by us. So they know it is the right person. So then they can help that person leave if they're having difficulties with leaving. Okay. So they find out and then they get asked to leave. Yeah. Is it ever helpful for somebody to approach staff there and say, hi, I'm John Smith. I'm self-excluded. Hmm. Do people do that? Yeah. So um, especially when someone's been going to a venue quite regularly and obviously people that are getting to the stage of self-exclusion usually have been going to at least one venue quite often. So sometimes um, they've built a really nice relationship with the staff that are working there. And so sometimes they will actually go up to the staff and just let them know that they're now officially on the self-exclusion program. Through your experience... 
can you share with me how you think the program works best? Because the people it seems to work best for are the people that, that are too worried to go in or they're worried about the embarrassment of being asked to leave. Yeah, that's that's actually the biggest deterrence for a lot of people. They don't want to be asked to leave because it is embarrassing getting asked to leave. Permission is sought from the person that's signing up that if they ever do refuse to leave, that the venue can take reasonable measures to ask them to leave beyond the staff member. So, for example, calling the manager, calling security to ask them to leave, or if they're still refusing or having hassles, the venue could even call the police to ask the person to leave. But in that situation, it's not about them getting in trouble by the police. It's about just asking them to move along. When people are getting their photo taken and staff can look at the photo, patrons, they can't see these photos? Correct, because it's either on the computer screen that's directed away from the patrons or it's in a book behind the counter or in a back room. Because as you can imagine, people are concerned about their privacy and they are concerned about being embarrassed and other people knowing that they're on the program. So the photos are only really designed for the staff who work in the gaming room or security to assist them to be able to know who they are. Adrian, thanks a lot for giving a great description of the self-exclusion program and um, yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you. You've been listening to Not A Dollar More. Thanks to all our guests today for sharing their stories and experiences. If you want any more information about the different resources and programs we've talked about today, you can find a number of our links on our website, notadollarmore.org.au. And another good place to start is the Gambler's Help Number, which is 1-800-858-858, where you can get free and confidential advice on getting help. This podcast has been produced by Banyul Community Health. My name is Shane Rogers. Check out all our other episodes for more stories of problem gambling, recovery, and ways to make changes and get help. Bye for now.